Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's July 12th. It's Tuesday, and welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for joining us, either live or later. Thanks oh, to like those that. of you that have, yeah, I, I came up with that a, little, a while ago. I was pretty proud of myself, and I just, I've just been waiting, just yeah. been waiting for the perfect opportunity to deploy the alliteration of live or later. I have to make a graphic for that. You got new headphones. I noticed it's like it's like when uh, when a, a you know a, lo- a couple that's lived together for a long time when yeah. one of the partners comes home and the other says, "Ooh, you got your hair done," mm. and then they are in ten points right out of the gates. I noticed immediately this morning. You had have new, you been working out? New cans, as they call them, uh, for a guy like you who makes his living in audio and production. It's awesome. These are the tools of the trade. Now people are going to look back and notice that you didn't notice that I've had these for. A couple of weeks, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? You never pay attention. But they're different to me than anymore. the ones you. Were, they're different than the ones you were wearing yesterday. It's not the same. Yeah. Hey, uh, real talkers, we promise you more riveting conversation like this. <laughs> <laughs> At least an hour of it. Erica Eiffel is going to join us in about ten minutes' time. I believe that Erica's probably in Ottawa this morning. I saw that she was tweeting. She's uh, she's uh, she says she's pretty excited to be uh, joining Real Talk. She says doing Alberta radio is a whole different vibe altogether. And so I can't wait to find out what she means by that. What's your guess? What do, what do you think it, what do you think know? it means? I think I think it means that I'll, I'll, you know when when you talk to uh as we call ourselves like a prairie podcast, uh, a west coast forum for conversation and debate, uh, maybe it's just I don't know, is it more spirited? I don't think so. Do westerners have more of a sp- I don't think so. Anyway, she's already given out a shout to a shout out to Ross Shep, which is a a, a well-populated high school in our hometown of Edmonton and so Erica knows what's up. She's been all over the place and I want to talk to her about a ton of things. She's been tweeting if you follow Erica, uh you know that she's been super quite frankly, what's the appropriate phrase for it? Pissed off about the Rogers outage. And uh, we'll get to her take on that. Cost of living, want to talk about affordability. And then she does great work when it comes to uh, equity and inclusion as a political commentator. She writes in Canada's National Observer, The Hill Times, and a bunch of other uh, uh, platforms uh, talking about equity and inclusion. And she's been pretty critical of the federal government. And I want to get into specifically why. Mo Amir, the host of This Is Van Color, is going to join us in about a half an hour's time. Uh, Mo out of British Columbia. That's the province playing host right now, of course, to the annual Premier's Gathering. It's being chaired by BC's Premier John Horgan who announced a while ago for health reasons will not be seeking re-election. Canada's premier is coming together with a a couple of top priorities. This is basically where they all try to get on the same page, and that is in opposition. Not really, but they they try to make life uh, more difficult or call out or put the onus on the federal government to fund important things. Uh, A big one. Uh, that they were talking about yesterday, said Premier Horgan, and we'll get to that in just a bit with Mo Amir, is affordability. But the number yeah. one thing Canada's premiers are looking for funding on is health care. The federal government saying right now, well, listen, you guys already have a ton of dough, and, and you're, you know, they're, they're, the federal government, Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, is kind of, I won't say smearing the premiers, because it's all gamesmanship, and we love it. I mean, this is what politics is all about. 
But the position of the federal government uh, is that the, the numbers are being fudged by the premiers. The, the, the funding scenario is not as inequitable as it would appear to be. Uh, so how much progress will the premiers make? Uh, you know, which of their priorities is probably most doable, most achievable, et cetera, most keeping an eye on that. We'll ask him for his take on the federal conservative leadership. And also, Moe's show, This is Van Culler, running on Czech News. You remember Czech? We were talking course, to yeah. Linda Steele and Jody Vance a few Fridays ago. Mm-hmm. Their show just announced there. It's, it's employee-owned TV station out on Vancouver Island, which is a really neat model. So I'd love to pick Moe's brain on that, too. When I was out in Kelowna, I watched Czech. It's great. Yeah. It's got, it's got like this down-home feel that like kind of the news has gotten away from lately. Like It feels... it really feels local when you're watching it. Yeah. Is it is it kind of the vibe, although I don't know if you were in Alberta at the time, John. I don't even think you were, but you remember like way back in the day before they were branded City TV, before they were acquired by by uh, Chum oh. and then by Bell Globe Media and then by Rogers, City TV, City TV got passed around a whole bunch. I was there. That's I think there before were, my time. There were three yeah. or four ownership changes in, mm-hmm. in the span of you know maybe five or six years. But when they first came, A-Channel, and they were the ones to sort of first have the uh, the video journalists out there, the VJs, and so no longer did reporters have like a camera operator, certainly not a sound engineer. They just went out, shot their own stuff. Uh, they were also kind of the first, like 10 or 15 years later, for the reporters to be shooting selfie-style reporter stand-ups, as you call them, ah, so out in the field. Which is what everyone does now. Yeah, it's what everybody does. So were they ahead of their time? I don't know. It Part of it Seems had to like do it. with certainly lean budgets and efficiencies, but it also is a style of storytelling like you're talking about with Jack. For sure, yeah. And uh, I just felt like uh, there's this one guy on there who had been there forever. But yeah, just very like you could tell the the reporters put a lot into each story. It was personalized. I feel like, yeah, I feel like reporters do way more than uh, they're being paid for these days. Oh, man. Well, I mean, it used to be you just went somewhere, you turned on, like you had a camera guy, you had someone in your ear, you had someone possibly writing for you editing yeah. they're doing all of that now right yeah for, for sure. everything yeah from for top sure to bottom. yeah and and uh just like you nobody <laughs> well and and it's kind of funny to get into this because really uh i don't mean nobody cares that's not the right way to to frame it but if, if you sit there and say well journalists are being paid less than they have before to do more and work. to do twice or three times as much work to file you know with more immediacy and we've talked about this on the show before how this demand for we talked about this with peter mansbridge uh, to drop a big name remember when he joined us a while ago and, and mansbridge was talking about it mm-hmm. and same with lyndon mcintyre the storyteller longtime storyteller multiple gemini award wins for tv and and for storytelling in canada of course, for his work on uh, uh, on a number of different CBC programs, uh, really just uh, Lyndon McIntyre was talking to us about his new book when he was out. But, but yeah. they were talking about this this need, you know, and Lyndon was kind of chewing on it. You can check our archives for this podcast archives, YouTube, YouTube. I recommend you check it out. But he was talking about his work on the Fifth Estate in particular. And so you'd be assigned a story and you'd have. You know, you, you could have days or maybe even some circumstances, even weeks or months to work on a big investigative story and get it right. But the expectations now, the demand is just content, content, content. And so you've got to be producing all the time and churning stuff out all the time. And you wonder what that does to the quality. Well, and the depth of it. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious to pick Mo Amir's brain on that kind of stuff. Is it too early to announce who we're talking 
to tomorrow because I'm already so excited about this. Do can, do we have the video locked and loaded out of out of uh, Kyrgyzstan? Is that uh, you we know do. what I'm talking? Do we want to we, we show we who we're it? talking has, has about, or do we want to show the video? Well, let's first. show the video first because this is this is making the rounds. You can't ignore it. It's probably you know you. I doubt you follow this guy on Instagram because uh, up until just a couple of days ago he was. Just a guy. Uh, his name is Harry Shimon, and he's with his friends, and they're traveling. Uh, they're they're on a remarkable journey through East Asia right now. And uh, Harry managed to capture this video. Why don't we roll it? I'll, I'll explain it for people listening on the podcast. You can hear this. Have you seen this one? This ice avalanche that's coming down in in Kyrgyzstan. It's it's trending it's all over the place. Millions of views. Literally millions of views. It it appears to be. Uh, from quite a distance away, but here it comes, right? And it's roaring in, it's rolling, and this this camera phone is just capturing it on video rather calmly. It's and then here closer. <laughs> here's here, here's where he realizes, yeah, he goes, oh shit. And here's where he realizes what's about to happen. And uh, you, it looks like it's slowing down for a second until you it's realize it's absolutely <laughs> not at all. Oh, and check this out. Oh dear God. You know, I mean, for people watching on YouTube, the video speaks for itself. And there's this ice avalanche roaring over him. Of course, he survives. And people have had a whole bunch of, like, you know, that guy shouldn't have put... They've got all these sort of comments on it. And, you know, what's he doing? Putting himself in this sort of a thing. So I reached out to him on a just on a flyer yesterday. And I said, uh, we would love to talk to you about shooting that video and about your journey overall and just what it's been like. And, and uh, he says, how's Wednesday? Nice. So he's going to join us tomorrow. I'm really excited about this. So we'll be able to hear straight from the guy that shot that video that, that literally, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, millions of views over the course of the first 24 hours that he posted it. He has one of these obligatory posts up now. He says to all my new Instagram followers, because, you know, this goes when somebody posts something like that. And then all of a sudden their follower count goes from, I don't know, 6,000 to like 50,000 overnight. So that's a great conversation coming up tomorrow. But between now and then, a lot of ground to cover. I've got some emails uh, ready to go from from Jordan, who talked to us about our interview with RCMP Sergeant Kerry Shima. Parents, do you know who your kids are talking to online? A great email from Jordan we want to get to. Maurice writing in about the Pope's visit to Alberta coming up to apologize for residential schools. And Neil wrote us uh, an email as well to talk at ryanjesperson.com about, uh, I still can't believe this when I say it. It just seems so, you know, uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, his, uh, you know, I mean, his, his life still being celebrated. Do you say his death, his murder uh, being mourned in Japan right now. It's an ongoing ceremony, of course, for a nation just absolutely shocked by the assassination of its former leader at a campaign event. You remember the morning that we reported that it had just happened. And I I went back and listened to it. I watched our coverage of it because I was just, we were just I was rattled by that. It had just happened overnight. This guy was uh, a major player in international relations. And of course, uh, in Japan, especially we talked about this, a country that is for all intents and purposes, totally unfamiliar with gun violence. It got us talking about guns. It got us talking about countries like Japan that saw nine gun deaths in 2018, 125 million people, nine gun deaths versus the United States that had about 38,000 gun deaths in that same year, double the population. Neil wrote in just to 
talking about where he wants the conversation to go when it comes to gun ownership, and especially in Canada. We value those opinions. These conversations happen because of our sponsors that, that each and every week show up to essentially ensure that people are talking about the things that matter and that includes the team at apex automation we're so excited to have them partnering with us apex automation right now putting the call out to engineers across the country are you feeling like you know maybe in your current situation you're limited when it comes to reaching your true potential would you like to help companies clients become more efficient more profitable and have a company that recognizes you do that by putting the best team of people together? Are you looking to achieve great things? Well, today could be the day that you make your move to work for Apex Automation. At apexautomation.ca, you can learn more about available career opportunities. What's open right now? Check out their flexible hours, their professional development opportunities, and uh, a corporate culture that's unlike a lot of other engineering firms. Trust me when I say that. Apex Automation is providing fully autonomous solutions, intuitive ones, to industry. They're giving people back their time. Our friends at Friesen Brothers. (laughs) We're just... Every time I see Friesen Brothers right now, I get this visceral reaction from you. I feel like now you, we're all in. We've fully switched from our, I won't even say our old You grocery. found your new religion. We're in. We're 100% in. So all right. What's what's one which of the things? Every time we go there, we're just like, they have so many options for us. I can't wait to introduce you to the their Because we're the plant lead, eaters. We're the grass. Team. We're the dirt yeah, yeah, eaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Picked up a vegan Caesar there last night just on the way home. Just had to grab it. Just nice and convenient. How was Caesar the vegan South? Caesar? It was incredible. And you can get, look in the back. There's plant-based chicken you can get on it as well. There's the option. And then I turn around and right behind me, I see the uh, local. Have you tried the El Gringo salsa? Love the El Gringo salsa. The pineapple salsa. The mango salsa. Got this for the wife because she's a mango maniac. And then... Uh, made another 90 degree turn boom oh yeah sure there's some local troubled monk brew yeah craft Craft beer four pack and that was that was about five minutes in freezing oh my gosh yeah you gotta you gotta be careful in there yeah i'm one of those people that i go in with the basket and then i make the transfer to the cart you know (laughs) when you're real sometimes i'll go from one basket to two and then to the cart Nah, we've all been there. Friesen Brothers in 16 Alberta communities. Uh, don't forget, on the first of every month, it's 15% off. That's a huge deal. Every grocery order of $75 or more. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Looking forward to connecting with uh, Erica Eiffel. She's been on the show before, uh, an absolute riot. And uh, I just love it because Erica is one of those people you will never say, and, and, and I don't think that she'll take any issue with this assessment. People will never wa- say, I wonder how Erica feels about this. Uh, she's quite uh, well articulated in uh, not just the podcast platforms, but also in writing in columns. You've probably seen her work in the Hill Times, in McLean's National Observer, the Globe and Mail. Uh, she founded Not In My Color, which is a consultancy that uh, takes organizations from meaningful conversations to systemic change in equity and anti-racism. And she's also co-host of the Bad and Bitchy podcast. It's so good to have you back on the show. Good morning. Hello. Uh, I was Johnny and I were laughing. I had a big smile on my face when, uh, when you tweeted a while ago. You said, I'm about to hop on Real Talk. And you said, doing Alberta is a whole different vibe. And I it said, I, yeah, I can't wait to ask what you mean by that. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So I was um, interviewed by another reporter on Friday. It's like the only, <laughs> the only um, call I got during the Rogers meltdown. Mm, yeah. Right. So uh, I was talking to him. It was just so easy. We were vibing. There was none of this. There was none of this veneer of propriety. Uh. It was just two people talking. And uh, I was like, this is really wild. Like, this is really easy to you're really easy to talk to. He's like, I'm from Calgary. I said, oh, that explains it. <laughs> you're from the West. And people when you talk to people in Ontario, if they have it's like they have to perform professionalism. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they have to have a veneer of some sort of I am to be taken seriously as a professional. Mm. So they'll talk to you with this weird kind of almost robotic way. It's mm. weird. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's like it's like when you see a lot of professional athletes, particularly in hockey, get yes. interviewed and it's just yeah. like it's the most boring interview of all time. I love You're like why? I Who love I'm like just let, let let me tell you what he's about to say right now. He's about to, <laughs> yeah, about to say you got to play the full 60 minutes, full 200 games, you got to play both. <laughs> exactly. No nobody cares about this interview. Uh, exactly. Do you think maybe the I mean, you're a podcaster yourself, obviously co-host mm -hmm. of, of Bad and Bitching. You've done a lot of other media. Do you, do you think that maybe the, the proliferation of podcasts, um, maybe the, the access to platforms for a, a lot of people that 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 maybe haven't typically had access to those platforms, but certainly have hot takes? Do you think that's maybe changing the the, the entire way or the entire tone of how stories are told or, or issues are dissected? Oh, new media is leading the way because if you think of, for example, explainer articles, mm. that wasn't a thing before, right? And because news moves so fast, and I find that Vox started this first when they said, uh, when they started out their um, explainer pieces that just, um, just caught people up to topics. And I just think there's a freer way of, telling a story than a typical way that news people have been used to. Um, so the way we would tell a story, for example, is we always start out with the story and uh, we always have some sort of, of commentary along those lines. And uh, because we, we know politics and we know policy, because we both worked for the Federal Public Service and so we know how that works. And so, you know, sometimes you interject with your own story. It's very personal. I find that media now is more customized and more personalized mm. to tone to to the audience that they're serving. Because if you if you look at if you've ever been to like um, any sort of discussion on new media and how to gain followers and stuff, it's all about serving your community. Yeah. And I think new media thinks of their listeners more as a community than an audience per se. It's, it's more, it's more give and take rather than just consumption. I totally agree with you. Yeah. We, we talked to Connie Walker yesterday. Uh, oh, yay. Oh my gosh. She is. Just, oh, right? I am a fan. Did you, yes. you, you obviously, I'm, I'm assuming by your enthusiasm, you've checked out stolen, uh, surviving St. Michael's and she, I was, I was saying to her, I haven't I, finished it yet though. I won't, okay. there, I won't, uh, I won't say anything. Um, but and it, that was kind of part of the challenge yesterday in talking to her. Cause I had so many specific things I wanted to ask her about the podcast, this eight episode podcast on Spotify. But at the same time, I don't want to destroy it for people that haven't yet had a chance to check it out. But 
The point I wanted to make with her is, uh, in in particular, what a personal exercise to to sort of do a deep dive into her dad, her uncle, her aunts, her grandparents' experiences in residential schools, and then yeah. ultimately through the through the journalistic exercise, which was a number of months. I can't even imagine how many interviews, how many hundreds of hours of work went into it. But she she ends up. Um, you know, really contemplating the intergenerational impact of or what residential schools did to to her and the impact that residential schools are having on her daughter. Right. But th- and th- this sort of, you know, reiterates that intergenerational idea of, of trauma, in- yeah. intergenerational trauma. And, and anyway, I just applauded Connie yesterday because it's just remarkable to have such a personal thing. Uh, there you you wear your heart on the sleeve on your sleeve all the time, which I love. I want to remind people you're you're a journalist. Yeah, you're also an economist, so it gives you yeah. kind of an interesting perspective in dissecting issues. But but it became very apparent over the past few days you were one of millions of people across the country losing their minds because they're Rogers customers and none of their shit was working. And you on your pot your platform on Twitter calling for the CEO to step down. Have things calmed down for you? Are, are you happy now with the way that no. things? Because, no, I know you're not. No, because because naturally Roger screwed up my data. Okay. Oh. And they're telling me I used all this data on Saturday. And I'm looking, I'm telling them there's no way that I did. Listen, fighting with Rogers for them to be accurate is like an Ontario pastime, I feel. <laughs> um, it is it is one of the worst companies to deliver services ever. And, you know, you guys have tell us, like, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, so, hey, hang on a second. Charles Adler was under this impression. Yesterday. He doesn't think that anybody in or was it Chuck that said this? John, I don't remember who said it. Someone's like, well, do, do people in Western Canada even use Rogers? I said a ton of people in Western Canada use ton Rogers. Of people. I was ton on of, it for years. Yeah, you were on it for years. Yeah. So it's uh, there were a lot of people in Alberta too. BC. I saw that were just handcuffed this weekend. There is no look. Cash is king. OK, that's what I learned on friday yeah cash is still king but do you still carry cash interact was out yeah there was no interact but who has cash right so thankfully i i don't want to shout out this bank but thankfully i bank with a bank (laughs) that that to be fair you know can never do anything right Mm -hmm. okay td can never (laughs) do anything right but they have a bank machine on every corner so you don't have to go very far. So that was okay. But cash is now king again. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? Um, a lot of families, I mean, I, I'm curious. I, I give you the heads up on this. That Just as an economist, I'm always curious for your take on this, but also just as like a real-life human, um, mm. you know, going through day-to-day. Right now, you talk to people across Canada. Obviously, people have... Uh, the issues that matter most to them. If someone's just had a, a cancer diagnosis, that's what they care about. That, that's what makes the most sense. If their dog just passed away, that's what they care about most that yeah. day. But for all intents and purposes, people right now are trying to figure out how to navigate uh, this economy right now with inflation, like almost triple what people are used to. The cost of living is getting out of control. I mean, the price of gas, no matter where you look across the country. My uncle in Vancouver tells me that it was 265 the other day for regular. Like, it's just people, I mean, people can't even really understand how they're going to navigate this. Uh, as a citizen and as an economist, what are you keeping an eye on in the context of cost of living right now? Um, housing, definitely. Mm. I want to see how the interest rates are going to affect um housing demand and how rising interest rates are going to, is it going to dampen that? I don't know. I I think we're really in weird, unprecedented times right now. I know people say that, 
but you know, this pandemic isn't over also. Um, and we're going to, which means we're probably going to have to get, continue to get those supply chain issues. And it just goes to show what we should be thinking about is how much we um, oriented our economy towards efficiency. And efficiency and agility are what economists would call orthogonal, which means they're basically at opposite ends. Um, with more efficiency, you have to give up agility and that ability to maneuver. And what we've seen in sort of supply chain and supply chain models is that um, once one part breaks, uh, it, it wrecks the whole thing. So there are a number of things happening. Uh, as I can, of course, the war in um, Ukraine is a big factor. Um, the pandemic is a big factor. Uh, I know that governments are probably reticent to open their wallet or open the, the, um, the fiscal floodgates for people again. Uh, if yeah. the pandemic, it's a no-go, right? So all of the instruments we used before are a political no-go if this pandemic wave becomes worse. Yeah, and I like to state the obvious, I know that I'm not the only person paying attention. People are talking about a sixth wave, seventh wave. People are talking about the yeah. you know hospitalizations are are starting to uptick across the country again. I think I saw yesterday. I mean, at its peak within the last year or so, I think that the, the 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 highest number of people that were hospitalized at COVID were about at say 25% of where the absolute peak was. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, that number is not negligible. And I know a lot of people right now, we're hearing from people that are telling us that they haven't been wearing a mask for several months now, and now they're going back to it again. And it's just been an interesting reminder. We have a lot of conversations with people like you, Erica, experts in in the economy and in business and in commerce and in, and in trade. And they talk about this, these, you know, these post-pandemic recoveries or the post-pandemic action plans that oh. finance ministers around the world are tasked with and the messaging behind that. And then you take a look around you and you go, I'm not so sure that the factors impacting this hurting or lagging uh, or supercharged economy based on your perspective are, are wrapped up. I think it's we're still kind of in the midst of the storm a little bit. I think the whole idea of the post-pandemic is a political one. I think that a lot of leaders uh, didn't know what to do, especially when Omicron hit. Uh, a lot of, uh, I, there was a leadership failure and they want to change the channel. They want to move on. And so you didn't hear much of it in the Ontario election about the pandemic. It, it, it was wild. It was, it was as though it never really happened or it happened like three years ago. And, um, and so politically, yes, um, politicians don't want to deal with the pandemic. They want to deal with recovery. They want to deal with, they want to go back to the same old things they were talking about before the pandemic. But life does not move like that and people will suffer and our public services will continue to suffer and people, um, citizens, uh, when I say citizens, I mean the citizenry, not necessarily immigration status or anything like that, um, will feel that loss of services. So even in the summer now, uh, you, want to, you want to get away, you have to wait in line for a day, day and a half for a passport. Mm. So we can, we can see 
the degradation of our public services. And I think that that's a big issue that we're not talking about right now that is pandemic related and that is affordability related because we need our institutions to be able to respond. Um, I don't know how people are paying for gas. I thankfully live close to downtown Ottawa. Yeah. Um, so I can walk to downtown, to be honest. And many times I do. Uh, everybody's going to have to take out a lot of credit just to drive around, to be honest. And that is due to, of course, a war and geopolitical reasons. But I also think if we didn't have a war, we'd have gas prices would go up. Yeah. I'm, I'm I never really I'm never convinced when people point to like the reason behind yeah. a lot of things. No, I, I really think that gas, not... I think that it is part of the same sort of storm that's happening. Yeah in this post-pandemic world. I, I, I think that the Russia-Ukraine or the Russian invasion is part of the story. I think that the reason, one of the reasons why it's going up, it probably explains the amplitude mm -hmm. or part of the amplitude, but it would still have an amplitude, I think, in absence of that war. My next door neighbor tells me just the other day they were pulling their trailer out with their kids. And he said after after two and a half, three hours on the highway, he says he looked at his gas gauge and he said, I thought camping was supposed to be the cheap option. Cheaper version. Right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, why are we yeah. just flying somewhere and staying in swanky hotels? It's going to cost them the same. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're into climate, what does that mean for climate? Right. Mm. Climate yeah. very much. Our response to climate is very much economically based. If we pay too much for gas, of course, we're not doing we're not doing climate. That's how it works. Yeah. Well, you I know. mean, you know, people have talked. We're, we're fickle with that is what I'm saying. Well, there and there has to be incentives like we, you know, we have a solar panel partner, Kubi Energy, that, that we partner mm -hmm. with. And it's interesting. I was talking to their CEO the other day and cost is coming down big time on solar installations and the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. He said, and uh, Jake tells me, Jake Kubiski says, one of the things that was really interesting, he says, 10 years ago, people that were putting solar panels on their roofs were not doing it with any sort of impetus of, of cost efficiency or saving money. They were doing it out of conviction. They yeah. wanted they wanted to do their part to live bless more sustainably, people. right? And bless those yeah. people. That's awesome. That's yeah. fantastic. He said, but what's contributed to like an influx, why you see way more solar now in neighborhoods is because now people can justify it financially. And for yeah. most people, I don't think that's a, that's not a bad thing. That's just a reality for most people. What matters most to them is their household's bottom line. Exactly. And, you know, I am a believer in incentives. Like that's how, gov that's part of what government does. It creates incentives to get us to switch our consumption one way or another. Hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that we are, we will build that infrastructure to expand that those options too, because I think what we need to start doing is we need to start giving people, um, exactly what you're saying, those options away from your fossil fuels to be able to heat their home, to be able to do all those things. And if there's one thing Alberta has, it's sky. <laughs> you're from you you went to Rochelle, right? You you I did. You, so you did you grow up in Edmonton? I did. I grew up in Edmonton. And then when did you move? How long have you been in Ottawa? What brought you to Ottawa? Uh I did my masters in Calgary. Okay. And then I got a job out in Ottawa at the federal government and uh, I've been here ever since. Yeah. Would you ever move back? But I come 
I come back regularly. Would you would you move back west or are you? Are you I never say never. Yeah. Yeah. I never say never. Ottawa's a special city, though. I lived there one it's summer. It's special. <laughs> were you bracing? Uh, it, were you bracing yourself for July 1st? I was. I was. Because nobody uh, knew I what rode, was going to happen. No, but I rode my bike down to Parliament Hill. See, I live close enough to Parliament Hill to that to do that, too. I live in a good spot, to be honest. Sounds well, like not it. so. Well, not so great, because anyway, bad things have happened here, too. But anyway, all this to say, um, I rode my bike down to Parliament Hill. Uh, here's what I saw. Um the regular sort of, you know, yay Canada people, as you see on the hill every year, were there, mixed in with convoy people, mixed in with, I found that there was a big Christian presence this year. Huh. And that was something new that I had not seen before. Like, I don't remember seeing uh, Bible verses on placards on Canada Day. And which Bible uh, verses? I I I don't know. I feel like I feel like it was Proverbs. <laughs> like, I feel okay. like it was something from Proverbs. You know, as long as it wasn't would, Revelation, yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that, that's what they might have been saying on the mic. Yeah. Uh, because you know, and that is interesting to me because um the marriage of the far right and the Christian right is um is is typical. It's it's it says to me that that the far right is rising and um, it's showing up with its allies on Parliament Hill. I think we have a problem. I will always say that. I think we have a huge problem and I don't think we're talking about it enough. Hmm. Well, and that problem is the rise of the far right. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with you. And uh, we uh we don't have to rap. Like I asked you, I asked you for 20 minutes of your time. We don't have to rap because when somebody, no, I did. when a guest on the show says something like you just said, I, and I agree. I, yeah. So let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, okay. Uh, because I think that um, it, it demands a conversation we saw in the United well, States. I mean, we've had just to stay, say one obvious thing. Um, the assertion that many people, um, I'm about to open up a can of worms by using of a certain, you are. A, a certain yes. word. No, Let's we're in front. It. I know you. I know you personally <laughs> cannot stand the word centrist. Um, yeah. But 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 I think a lot of so-called centrists over the past five or ten years have said, you know, for example, Supreme Court in the U.S. is never going to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's not ever going to happen. Uh, and then all of a sudden. Ooh, uh, over the course of a few years and stacking the courts and et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows the backstory. Look where we are now. And you see developments in Canada. And I don't blame anybody for wondering if the same sort of a rights rollback might happen here or at least be attempted here. And and I do think that, you know, to speak in first responders terms, it's it should be a, a five alarm response right now. I think people should be alarmed yeah. and paying attention. Well, we just had... Um you know, MPs that met with convoy leadership, uh, you know, and and they got a tour. <laughs> like, they got a tour of Parliament. The same people who wanted to overthrow the government got a tour of Parliament. And that is analogous to um, the Republican congressman. I think his name was Barry Loudermilk or something like that. He gave a tour to the insurrectionists on Capitol Hill. I mean, those two things are analogous. 
And so it's funny because today is the uh, January 6th hearing, I believe. Mm. And uh, they're continuing with that. But the same forces that are shaping up in the U.S. I mean, why wouldn't they form here? I mean, the 49th parallel, like I said, has been a very porous border for history. And we've had many of similar histories. Well, and, and I think that, that, you know, activists, if you want to call them that, uh, whatever the word is, you know, the, the people become emboldened regardless of where they stand on the spectrum or what their issue is. They become emboldened if they see other jurisdictions, including other nations, move on something policy or otherwise. And so you see it mm-hmm. happen in the States. And that's something that you recognize could happen here or could be doable here. I mean, hey, how about one of the stories that's broken over the past little bit? I mean, I wonder about the political liability, maybe not political liability, but former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, right? Police subpoenaing phone records as part of a prosecution against a convoy organizer. They find that Saskatchewan's former premiers exchanged 25 text messages with them, counseling them on on organizing this convoy. And you kind of go, like, understanding how these things work behind the scenes, Wow. I mean, treason's a thing, right? Like, I, <laughs> I, I mean, sure. I mean, everybody's throwing treason around right now, though. The convoy. Know, are, you oh, know. OK, OK. Let me put it to you this way. How disloyal can you be? Really? It's funny to me how uh, immigrants of color will be will be um, will be asked over and over about their loyalty to this country. Jagmeet Singh, for example, is a good example of that. I remember when Terry Molesky asked him about his loyalty to Canada. I remember when Dr. Tam's loyalty was questioned uh, in the beginning of the pandemic. Not even was. That's still that's still is. Yeah, is. is. Yeah. But why are we questioning Brad Wall's loyalty to this country? Well, you know why, Erica? Because people that support the convoy spin it as the ultimate act of patriotism. Right. The, the, the people that organized the convoy would accuse you and I of being disloyal for criticizing uh, their efforts to, 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 you know, celebrate and champion and preserve the freedom of everybody to make their own. Right. Who asked them for that? I didn't ask them for that. Why are they acting for me? Don't I have a freedom of thought, speech, all of that? I don't need to to um, substitute one overseer for another. That is my point. I don't. Like, I mean, one has seemingly checks and balances and the other is just a group of ragtag whomevers. I mean, that have no legitimacy. Again, where is the legitimacy? In what? In the convoy? Yeah. Where is it? Well, I where, mean, I, why, 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 why are they? What is what? I, just, I don't want to. I don't want to. Between somebody like a reporter on Twitter talking about how Tamara Lynch is a political prisoner, I I oh you're I'm talking really about Stephen Marr. Oh, oh you're talking God. about Stephen Marr. Oh we don't have God. Mo Amir. We should just bring Mo in as a panelist. We should just turn this we into really a we, 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 Mo. I, just, I feel like me and Mo know, need to be on. Do you know Mo? Let's bring it. Let's bring him in for a second. Yeah, I get, yeah, yeah. And then I'll he give him a, just. I'll give him a proper introduction. He's literally he, just texting me saying, "Erica's on fire. When yeah, can I get in?" Yeah, like let's just yeah, bring. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so yeah, the, yeah, I love doing this. This is the best part about doing a show like this is is we can oh. just sort of shift on the fly. So so Listen, we'll we'll figure you, out the logistics show, here. Your show makes me friends. By the way, I love to hear that. No, love- no, your show makes me friends. Seriously, 
That's amazing, Erica. Yeah. The, the only reason yeah. why we're not seeing Erica on screen right now is because John's getting Mo into the shot. So let me introduce him. Mo Amir is the creator, the creator and host of This Is Van Color. It's a, a BC-focused culture and politics podcast. He's been doing it for more than four years now, and uh, it's just wrapping up its first season as a TV talk show on oh, Czech cool. News. Super cool. Um, wow. and, and Mo does a whole bunch I'm of stuff. And, and he, he, you hear him on the CBC Radio <laughs> 1. He's a columnist for Vancouver. It's awesome. Mo, let's see your beautiful face this morning how are you yeah. pal? I am. good oh, to, good to see you thank you so much what an honor um ryan first of all it's just an honor that uh, you even took notice of me while i sit here in vancouver oh, come on but a, a bigger honor that um that i can be on your show and to be on with erica too i mean i'm i hope season two at some point, both of you will will be on the TV show, so I look forward to that. Well, I've yeah. already I've already yeah. told you that I'm, I'm confirmed. So, and yeah, you know, Erica <laughs> will do it. it. Yeah, let's I'll do, do it. it. Totally. Um, totally. So this this will be the crossover. Um, and and Erica, by the way, we're not gonna. We're I, I still want to ask you about a, a column that you wrote. I want to ask you about your piece on the liberals on a collision course to entrench anti blackness. I want to get to that oh, yeah, before yeah. we thank you for your time. But Mo, yes. what do you make of what we're talking about with the convoy? Like, what's your stance on this? Erica says, "Where's its legitimacy?" And I'm going I'm kind of having a hard time answering that question because that's not where my focus has been but but how have you approached the whole thing over the last i mean like year yeah i mean i think if you're a resident of ottawa you you are rightfully upset and you your life is probably being uh disrupted by some of these uh these pro quote-unquote protests uh, legitimacy i don't know i mean I, I kind of am in the camp that i think people are allowed to to protest but sure yeah. yeah i draw the line when it comes to hate speech or when you are severely disrupting the day-to-day -day lives of people and you know maybe an unpopular hot take but you know here in bc we deal with save old growth protesters that shut down um you know main arteries and, and bridges and really affect you know day-to-day -day working class people and so i'm not on board with that and i i think the repercussions should be doled out uh in an equitable way as it would for other people um, I think it's a dangerous political potato to play with, as some politicians have, and I know you alluded to that before I joined. Um, and so I don't know if if you really want to put your weight behind, you know, the freedom convoy and, and being being on that team because you have some ugly, ugly uh, characters involved in, in a lot of these protests. And so uh, the conservatives, some conservatives are kind of playing with that. Will it come to bite them in the butt? Uh, I'm sure the, the federal liberals and others are, are certainly hoping so. Yeah, I don't know. Erica, I don't know if you saw, I was uh, talking to Sapria Duvetti on Friday and we were ah, talking Sapria. Uh, yes. she, what a beauty. And we're, we're, we're talking about whether or not it is, you know, I mean, is it, uh, you know, uh, sort of something that could stand in the way. Let's say, let's assume Pierre Polyev wins the conservative leadership. I, I think that that's a foregone conclusion. And let's assume that he and the conservatives give the liberals a good run for their money in the next federal election, which I think is a fair assumption. Let's assume, they will. you know, so, so could this, could his support of the convoy stand in the way of him becoming prime minister? And I'm sitting there asserting mm, that I, I have a hard time. I don't, I don't necessarily think so. Well, that's I, and the thing. Supriya doesn't either. I, I, I'm very realistic about this country, <laughs> very realistic. And it's one thing to protest. It's another thing to occupy, you know, and that, that became an occupation and it became, um, a siege really, as even the Ottawa police called it that. But, uh, I, I'm here for protests. I really am great, but not an occupation. And uh, what it did is it, it, it barred people, it barricaded people in their homes. The people who couldn't get out of downtown Ottawa 
had to stay. They were either afraid of the convoy or afraid of the cops. So um, because that's the other thing is that the cops and the convoy are very much interlinked. The auto, they're members of the Ottawa police that supported the convoy financially. So we are kind of stuck in a place now where you don't know who your neighbor is anymore. You know, you don't, that's where we are. And I, I feel as though this is probably what the 19, it just feels like the precursor to something. I believe Pierre Polyev could, could become prime minister. I believe our next election could be um, much like the American election in 2016. Um, and it could have the same results, especially if, I'm going to say it. Christopher Freeland runs. I think it's going to turn out. I think Pierre Polyev is going to win. I, uh, I, I, uh, and we've had, uh, you know, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland on the show several can times. I just, yeah. Can I just say this? Sure. Tying it back to the affordability crisis, this is the perfect storm, the affordability crisis, um, another wave of a pandemic, and that anxiety and uncertainty that we have right now in our society. I think it's the perfect storm for things like misinformation, rise of 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 more extreme groups and things like that. I, I think I think this country's tearing apart at the seams. Can I can I add something here? Like I'm going to add a personal anecdote and I'm going to cite my dad, Mo Senior. Uh, he was a big Pierre Polyev fan. He was one of those people that were sharing the WhatsApp videos and talking about printing money and, you know, a variety of different issues that really resonated with him. But then when Polyev came out and, you know, supported the, the Freedom Convoy, or at least what he deemed to be the legal aspects of the protest, uh, even my dad was like, he was like, oh, no, I thought he was one of the good ones. Like, <laughs> he, kind of, he kind of, you know, walked back a little bit of his support. And he might, you know, my dad is kind of all over the map politically. He's a bit of a, he resonates with populist politics. Um, he's not a Trudeau guy. He really is uh disaffected by the, the Trudeau government. Um, but now he's having second thoughts about, you know, will he put his full weight behind uh, a Pierre Polyev a conservative party? And I do wonder how many people, particularly in urban ridings, who are concerned about affordability, as Erica noted, and who, who, um, who, who you know, when po populist politics speak to them generally, I wonder how they will look at this and and go, yeah, you know, like we're also a little bit resistant to bringing back some lockdowns, but we definitely do not want to be associated with uh, some of these characters in the protest. So we still have to see how this all fleshes out. I hope that there are no, you know, serious incidents or or things that really affect um, the day to day lives of people. But but ultimately, yeah, this is a very fine line that I think the conservatives are walking and it might turn off a lot of supporters that they want to bring in and that they will need in order to form government. And I think that that both of you are bang on in your assessments. But here's the gist of what Sapria says on Friday on the show. People can go back and check out that interview, of course. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering aloud to where, well, what's this going to do for the so-called progressive conservative faction, the moderates, right? The, you know, the average person in an urban riding that that would love to vote conservative, be inclined to in in maybe a Toronto suburb Mo, or a Vancouver suburb where you are obviously extremely important ridings. Uh, and I say they're going to be just like you're saying, Mo, they're going to be turned off by this kind of stuff. They're not going to vote. Sapria's assertion is she doesn't think that matters because that's not who his campaign, who Mr. Polyev's campaign is targeting. 
Uh, the campaign is targeting the the twenty three year old, you know, typically, you know, not necessarily exclusively males, obviously. But if you you look at who's most ardent supporters are, you know, they get a bad <laughs> the cryptocurrency gets a bad name. You could argue deservably so, but the so called Bitcoin Bros, right? And and the Bitcoin and, Bros. <laughs> and this and 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 if you can get enough of those people, just Supriya says on Friday, you can get enough people that typically wouldn't even turn out to vote. You don't need the moderates anymore. Yeah. Right. But how reliable are those are those demographics? Right. I mean, that's yeah. kind of the problem that Jagmeet Singh ran into with Gen Z, where he's super popular on TikTok, but really can't seem to translate that into into votes. Sorry to cut you off there. No. Oh, no, go, no. You bring up a good point. And um, but here's the thing. The affordability crisis will make fewer moderates of us all. Hmm. I'm just that is let, the point. I'm just going to let that simmer for a second, Erica. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Hey, listen, you're, you're, you're on pace, Erica, to become the first Real Talk guest that's ever joined us for a full fucking hour. Uh, but 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 I but I got we got to get to Mo's assessment of who's going to replace John Horgan and what's going on in B.C. and all oh, that. Yes, but but yes. we're, but we're I, not. I, oh, do you want to just. OK, we'll just hang. We've never done this before. I love it. Just hang out with us. But Erica, but Erica, before we do, before we do, yeah. because I don't want us to overlook this. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned bill. you're the founder the bill of C20. Seven, yeah. Yes, uh, you're the founder of, of Not In My Color. People, people can read your uh, work at notinmycolor.com. We were just talking about Mr. Uh, Minister Champagne, who's uh, the innovation minister. He's been uh, talking to, obviously, the telecom giants this week, uh, trying mm-hmm. to get accountability for Canadians. But but he is uh, one of the subjects of your recent column, June 22nd, where you assert that the federal liberals are on a collision course to entrench anti-blackness. Take us into it. What do you mean? So... The Minister of Industry, well, Innovation, Science and Economic Development, to be fair, um, introduced a bill on June on June 16th, uh, Bill C-27. It is what they call it has to do with privacy. So privacy, data, um, that kind of thing. There's an AI section in that bill and the AI section is what I would call inadequate. It's a, it's, a legisl- it's a legislative framework to set up the regulations for AI. Um, right now, we don't have legislation or regulatory framework around AI. Now, the problem with artificial intelligence, AI, is that it has the tendency to deepen systemic discrimination and to spread it like wildfire at scale. And what that means is that, uh, for example, facial recognition does not identify dark-skinned people um, and non-binary people and trans people. It is usually um, incorrect. So let me give you an example. So let's say um, your firm that uses artificial intelligence to hire. Let's say you've, you've trained the machine on historically successful candidates, right? The, but your, most of your historically successful candidates due to patriarchy, racism, et cetera, have been male and white and have quote unquote Canadian sounding names. Well, once you apply that machine learning to new applicants, it's going to screen out, um, I hate to use this word, but I will, ethnic sounding names um, and female names, right? 
And that's a way, let's say many companies use this same software, or maybe that becomes an industry standard for how this software, this machine learning is used. So then we have a problem, right? Now with this bill, what this bill says is that if you're harmed individually, you can, you can appeal to the minister and basically they'll take care of it. Well, how would I know if I've been harmed, if I've been screened out of something, right? How would I know? And that harm would be systemic. It wouldn't be individual. So really what's happening here is that um, we're, we're having what the, the legislation isn't going far enough to protect the people who are usually discriminated against. Erica Ivill and Mo Amir uh, joining us from uh, Ottawa and Vancouver, respectively, back with them in just a second. Hey, listen, we're grateful to have the sponsors that we do that make sure that, hey, we do what we can to stay on the air every single day, and that includes the amazing team at Park Power. This is a small business providing utilities across the province, electricity, natural gas, and internet, going up against the big guys. What do they offer that the big companies can't? Well, it's simple. A personal connection here. They care about the communities where they live and work, and that includes looking out for your best interests when it comes to, for example, getting scammed. That's right. You know, you hear about this new Government of Alberta electricity rebate program. Well, there's a phishing scam. Uh, there's several phishing scams out there Park Power wants you to know about. Check out their latest blog post at parkpower.ca. When you take your business over to Park Power, make sure you sign up using the promo code 2022-REALTALK. That'll knock $70 off your first bill. Our friends at Infinity Healthcare understand the stress that comes with trying to find a perfect fit for home care for your loved ones. They know that oftentimes home care that just comes as part of the deal doesn't work because there can be language barriers, there can be cultural sensitivities, there can be special needs. They have a personality matching service that makes sure that your loved one is paired up with a caregiver that's a perfect fit for them. You can learn more about it at infinity-8.ca. Don't forget they're hiring too. Are you an RN, an LPN that's looking for a change of pace, looking for a new way to bring your talent to the table? Infinity Healthcare could be a great fit for you. We mentioned Kubi Renewable Energy and how proud we are to partner with them as they continue to provide solar energy solutions to power your life. They're working out of their home offices in Kamloops, B.C. and Edmonton, Alberta. Solar installations in the agricultural, industrial, commercial, and most frequently residential sectors across Western Canada. Get your free solar quote today at kubienergy.ca and ask them about that $40,000 interest-free loan. The federal government's just made that available. It means solar is a whole lot more accessible to a lot more people. Friday is fast approaching, and that means another edition of Trash Talk, presented by our partners at Local Environmental Services. You know, some people say it's only garbage. Not to them. They believe that communities deserve better. Better service, better prices, more support for local causes. Local Environmental can show you how they can help. Check out localenvironmental.ca today. And don't forget, send us your rant, your rave, your gripe, the thing you've just got to get off your chest to talk at ryanjesperson.com. If you're 
one of those that's right now keeping an eye on gas prices. How could you not be? Erica was talking about those just a short while ago, and maybe you're looking to find something a little more fuel efficient. We recommend you start your search at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Yeah, they've got all the big trucks that'll help you pull your holiday trailers. They've got the SUVs, the most popular and highest selling SUVs in the market over the past number of decades. That's, of course, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, but a ton of fuel efficient options as well. My personal recommendation is that Jeep Wrangler 4xE, the electric Jeep Wrangler. Unbelievable ride with the classic Jeep styling, but all the newest technology. The best selection in the province is at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You'll find them under the sponsors tab on our website at ryanjesperson.com. Erica Eiffel's been hanging out with us, the uh, journalist, the economist based out of Ottawa, Mo Amir, also making his Real Talk debut today, the host of This Is Van Color, joining us from Vancouver. Hey, Mo, let's get to this because I know your, your, your province is, is playing host right now to Canada's premiers. It's their annual meeting. It's being chaired by your premier, uh, John Horgan, who stepped to the podium with uh, Quebec's premier yesterday, uh, talking about the priorities and what the leaders of Canada's provinces and territories are looking to achieve, uh, talking to the federal government. Here's a portion of what he had to say where we really have to insist that the federal government step up to the table to sit down with the provinces to address the fundamental issue that we've been wrestling with both of us since we were elected uh, to lead our respective provinces and that is to protect and preserve and enhance our publicly funded health care system mo is that the top storyline right now that people in british columbia are talking about you think health care is their number one concern oh yeah absolutely i think there's two uh number one concerns and they're interchangeable in their priorities uh the first is affordability particularly housing and that's been uh going on for a few years now and maybe a decade uh, but on top of that, it's absolutely healthcare. It, it, you know, about a million British Columbians do not have a family doctor. Uh, there are wait times up, up to two hours, sometimes even longer at walk-in clinics. This is a very serious issue that's affecting wide swaths of the population. Even if you have a family doctor, as I do, sometimes it takes two to three weeks to even get an appointment. You know, you call it a shortage, call it a broken model, whatever it is, British Columbians are absolutely frustrated in talking to cabinet ministers and talking to opposition MLAs. I can tell you that doctors, uh, family doctor shortages and uh, housing and, and affordability as a whole are the biggest issues in BC. And so I think there are a lot of British Columbians who maybe don't, you know, they're not on Twitter and they're not following politics as closely, but they're scratching their head going, we spent all this money during the pandemic. So where are the, you know, where are the new health facilities? Where are the new care centers? Where are the new hospitals? And this is going to be a big issue for the BCNDP. And so part of it, I think, is legitimate where they are asking for help from the federal government. But then part of it is also deflecting a lot of criticism that they are facing within the province to say that, you know, we're trying to do everything we can, but we, we need more help from, from the feds. And uh, I think Premier Horgan is definitely trying to soften a lot of the um, the, the, criti the critiques from opposition uh, for the next leader as well. So there, there's many levels to this. Uh, it is absolutely a legitimate problem. And, um, you know, John Horgan, I think, is trying to save face and, and maybe trying to pass the buck a little bit to uh, to the feds. I don't know about you, Erica, but when you hear Mo's uh, frank assessment of, of, of essentially the reality right now, and, and, and you can almost, I know Mo, you'd say this, you can almost sort of take what you talked about and apply it to any jurisdiction in the country right now, and a huge same issue is staffing, right? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. same in Ontario, same in Alberta, same in rural mm -hmm. doctors, nurses, and the like, mm -hmm. a lot of people... 
And I guarantee you, because we hear from them all the time, healthcare professionals, some of them are still just clinging by their fingertips and they're going to see this thing through. But I don't know how much runway they're going to see left with regards to especially those maybe in the latter stages of their career that understandably um, maybe the the the. what do I say here? The, the the gentle way to say it might be exhaustion and probably the more realistic or accurate phrase might be PTSD that a lot of healthcare yeah. professionals are going to be dealing with. And then you mm-hmm. look at this next generation. Trust me, I'm not trying to chase anybody away from a career in healthcare, but I can't imagine a lot of, you know, people coming out of high school, 18, 19, 20 years old right now going, you know what? You know what I noticed over the past couple of years? I, you know what I'd love to do is is go work in healthcare right now. Well, we need those talented professionals, but Boy, oh boy, I bet you that not just retention, but recruitment is going to be a big challenge over the next few years. Almost definitely, especially with, um, you know, in Ontario, we had Bill 124, which uh, capped the uh, increase in wages. It was, you know, the NDP called it a wage suppression bill, which I think it was. And so there's not much incentive to go into nursing or medicine or anything like that because we didn't treat them very well when we needed them so why should we expect people to choose to go into those professions um but it it goes back to the 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 bigger question about our public services and um how much we are willing to save and put forward not only to the construction of, or not only to the capital costs, so not only to the construction of new facilities, new equipment, et cetera, but the staffing, the operations is a huge problem. Um, the family health uh, network are, is, is, is still lagging. And there are, I think what we need to start talking about is mental health and how we're going to support mental health in a public way through our healthcare system. Um, and you know what that cost is gonna be and what the expectations are, because I feel like we're also a country going through PTSD in some sort because of this pandemic, but definitely our healthcare workers and our teachers too have really, and a lot of other you know essential workers have really, really picked up. They really took one for the team in this country. And we haven't really done anything to to make their lives better. Yeah, I you know, it's it's I'm sitting there and as you're talking and you go healthcare workers, I go, yep. you go teachers, I go, yep. And then I'm sitting there and thinking about like small business owners. Yep. And it just feels like everybody got kicked in the teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Repeatedly. And you, you, you sort of wonder what the future is going to look like. Um, Mo, in the in the context of the, the BCNDP, uh, John Horgan, who I think it's and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you're the one that lives there. You're the one that comments on it all the time on a daily basis, almost uh, in my mind, a, a relatively popular premier. Right. I mean, I think like he he saw a dip in popularity recently in, in some polling. But generally speaking, across the country, he I think he's perceived to be one that has the respect of a decent number of people in, in his in his home province. How, how do you think that the, the BC NDP's legacy through COVID will be assessed by the general population? And, and what could that mean for not just the leadership race uh, when it comes to replacing John Horgan as leader of the BC NDP, but the next time that, you know, BC goes to the polls to, to you know, find out who's going to be its next premier? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. I, I think first and foremost, when, when we're talking about Premier John Horgan, absolutely, he is very 
popular. I think part of that is his personal brand, because when you look at pandemic response, you know, there, there were a lot of similarities with uh, Ontario and Alberta, and yet Premier Horgan really did maintain a high level of popularity. Uh, we know that, you know, BC withheld a lot of data. They're called the most secretive government in all of Canada. Uh, so there's a lot to criticize there. And, and, the, and the reality is we also have the other public health emergency, which is the drug poisoning deaths uh, emergency, which has been going mm -hmm. on for quite some time. And so there's a lot to pick at at this government. And yet John Horgan has been, you know, made of Teflon in a way. And weirdly enough, the one hit that he took during the pandemic was over this controversy about funding a, a museum in Victoria. Uh, that was the issue that seemed to rile people up more so than, you know, the doctor shortages or the drug poisoning crisis or a variety of other issues that I think uh, are probably more important uh, to the province, just in my opinion. Um, and so the test is going to be, you know, how much of the BC NDP's popularity is tied to the John Horgan brand and how much of it is intrinsically just people happy with the BC NDP. And, and I think, you know, like most things, it's probably a mix of both. Um, but for the new leader, uh, I, I don't foresee a particularly competitive race. I think the BCNDP politically have been very good in keeping everyone on the same page. Last time that they had a leadership race, it was just John Horgan. You know, Mike Farnworth withdrew and there was no other candidates. I think we'll see a similar situation here. We already have people like my colleague at, at Czech News, um, Rob Shaw, declaring this race over, even though no one has officially declared that they're wow. running. Yeah, he said that, you know, Attorney General, uh, BC Attorney General David Eby is, is the shoe-in. Uh, I think that's sort of the, the consensus. Uh, I don't see any anything to say the contrary. I think the names that have been thrown out there have either explicitly come out and said, we're not running, or they've privately said it. Um, so I think David Eby is kind of positioned to be the next leader, and I think his challenge will be taking on a lot of these major issues, including doctor shortages, uh, including affordability, uh, including things like even things like uh, funding for for kids with autism. Uh, there are a lot of issues on on the table that he's going to have to deal with. Um, and at the same time, I think for regular British Columbians, uh, uh, David Eby is going to basically have to introduce himself and imprint his own brand that hopefully resonates in the same way as John Horgan, but obviously tailored towards him. Hmm. And I know I'm a I rant a lot. I'm very I, I, I talk. Hey a man, lot, this but, is this is what we do. But I think the thing that is often underappreciated with John Horgan is the political branding. And that's not to say it's inauthentic, but I think there was a concerted effort when John Horgan became the leader to brand him as, you know, premier dad, as this fatherly figure, the guy you want to have a beer with. You can call it populist on one hand or folksy on the other, uh, because originally the B.C. liberals who were in government before, they were kind of trying to they were trying to brand Horgan as this like angry, hot tempered, uh, not fit for office person. And the BCNDP very strategically and very consciously spun that and said, well, no, no, no. he's angry because British Columbians are angry. So he's mm -hmm. angry on your behalf. Well and, done. And they, they did an incredible job. And, and, you know, I think that's why he's enjoyed so much popularity throughout his uh, tenure as, as premier. And, and, and to the BCNDP's credit, I think in their first term, they, they were doing politics slightly differently. I think there's a lot more to criticize in this second term. And David Eby, if he becomes the next leader or whoever becomes the next leader, will have to wear and answer a lot of that. And so, again, going back to the, the, um, the meeting with the premiers right now, 
spinning a lot of this to say, well, it's actually the federal government's fault and we're trying our best and we're fighting for you, uh, I think also has a, a political strategy to it as well. Erica, I know with, with Mo's observation of, of the messaging around John Horgan or the strategy there with regards to, to explaining the passion, uh, a friend of mine uh, who went on to, by the way, he's a current, uh, he's a, a Vancouver police officer, we went to university together, he used to wear this t-shirt when he'd work out that said, I yell because I care. And I thought that was kind of an interesting t-shirt, an interesting sentiment. But what most had resonated with you, and I wonder if that's because, did you see that, that same playbook essentially win Doug Ford, the most recent Ontario election, where he just, it was this really remarkable connection, I think, with the people where he, he adopted this kind of aw shucks mentality and, and started talking. <laughs> talking to the folks all the time and and he really became kind of less combative he didn't fuck around with the convoy stuff he didn't get himself messed in the muck and mire that could have been a real liability and boy did it ever pay off i mean a bigger majority than he had heading in you can say fuck on this show you can say whatever the fuck you want <laughs> no nobody told me that <laughs> well how different would the interview have been oh well we'll see now won't we <laughs> I think, yeah, I think Doug Ford, here's the thing. Politics is a people's game, okay? As soon as you have a candidate that's able to connect with people, you, and, you know, I don't care how smart or capable the next candidate is, it's one, like, the former is going to overtake the latter, basically. And um, Doug Ford has the ability to talk to you like normal. Remember how I was talking about how, um, how it's great to be on Alberta media because it's like you're talking to people really. That's what Doug Ford does, right? Mm. He, he, he just talks to people normally as this, oh, shucks. It's, he's not aggressive, right? Because I feel like Ontario does not like aggressive. Mm. I, I, that's, I, I feel like Ontario doesn't do aggressive very well. Mm. And um, Doug Ford... Uh, you know, I always question his leadership and stuff like that. But if you compare him to Andrew Horvath and uh, Stephen Del Duca, I almost forgot that man's name. Stephen Del Duca <laughs> was robotic. He was robotic and off-putting. And Andrea Horvath just, I don't know, she didn't seem real a lot of times. So yeah, I think I think that's helped Doug Ford a lot. I think his ability to make nice with Trudeau when he had to and Christian Freeland when he had to um, also helped him. He looked like the guy who did who wasn't into the ideology of a Jason Kenny. He looked like the guy who could who could come to the table and reason with the other side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, and one of the other things that Doug Ford very did very well, especially in the middle of affordability, is that he took away user fees. So user fees like licensing and stickers and stuff like that, it's little, it's small, it doesn't really do anything structurally, but people, number one, people feel like you're listening to them. Yep. Like, you, like, like you get them, like you get their pay, like you get what they care about, number one. Mm. So that connects you to them more. And number two, it's not going to cost you a lot in terms of your donors, for example, who want to keep the status quo. Do you see what I mean? It's not going to do anything to structurally change their power. 
Yeah, Erica brings up some some really interesting points. And I think when, when it comes to speaking to people, the BCNDP have been particularly strong at that and they've been mm. very good at that. They had a bit of a slip up with, again, this sort of museum debacle, but in general, they've been very good at understanding where the public mood is. And you're absolutely right. Is When you have that person that makes you feel like you're being listened to and is responsive, that goes a long way. And, and you find it in, as Erica pointed out, the smallest things. One name that was being tossed around for uh, John Horgan's replacement was the mayor of a, a Vancouver suburb here, Brad West. Uh, he's the mayor of Port Coquitlam. And he's an extremely popular mayor and an extremely popular. I've heard mayor. of him. Yeah, he's popular in <laughs> British Columbia. And, you know, he told me this story about, he does a great job as mayor, uh, uh, you know, fundamentally, but he told me this story that he instituted a junk program in Poco. So basically you could put out your couch or fridge or whatever out on the curb on a certain day and the city will come and pick it up and dispose of it appropriately. And he said, you know, he thought it would just, it was just a cool program and they were able to do it. But the love that he got for it, both online, offline calls, people just going out of their way to say, this is the best program ever. You're the best mayor. And just understanding that fundamental need that, you know, for policy wonks might be off the table. Right. <laughs> but, but for regular people, it, it, it goes a long way. And I think when it comes to channeling anger, because there is a lot of anger in this country and a lot of yeah. it is warranted, whether it's yeah. about healthcare or affordability, when you're in government, you can't be angry because you're in charge. Right. So it's a great role to play when you're in opposition. And it's almost an easy role to sort of grandstand on. But I think for the for the next premier um, and even when we've seen cabinet ministers in, in B.C. get upset, Mike Farnworth is one in particular. He's the solicitor general. Uh, it's kind of off putting to the public that that's just like, well, you're, you're the one in charge. Like, why are you mad? Mm. Uh, you're not mad for us. You're the one making the decision. So it's a fine line to play when you have what I would say an angry population and rightfully angry population and you're in charge and you're trying to continue to speak to them but for whatever reason you can't deliver to their needs immediately well and this is mm -hmm. i mean it's essentially the conversation that people are having uh about pierre polyev right now in the campaign mm -hmm. it's an extremely effective campaign i mean jenny byrne and their team is running an unbelievable campaign uh the the the, the mastery of the message and of social media and connecting with people and creating this audience and drawing support like very visible support uh and 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 tapping into the anger the frustration the energy the dissatisfaction that people are feeling the obvious question is Will that translate? Does Mr. Polyev have the plan? Does he have the leadership ability, uh, you know, to, to carry out or to deliver on some of these promises? I mean, it's easy to shoot a video in Vancouver and say, look at this, you know, two million dollar knockdown. You know, this this, you know, two million dollars doesn't get you anything in Vancouver. Home ownership is a pipe dream for for young people and young families. That's all true. But then to say my government will fix this. People are going to say, well, okay, how? You know, it's it's like you yeah. said, Mo, it's a, and it's probably the easiest assertion to make in observing politics, but it's a lot easier to oppose than to govern. Absolutely. As a sidebar, can I just point out that uh, the, the the woman running Pierre Polyev's BC campaign, Katie Merrifield, is the most underrated ah. political strategist in the country. And I'm not just saying that because she's my girlfriend. It's <laughs> true. She is extremely talented. And uh, she's doing a great job here in BC for, for Pierre Polyev. I actually attended a couple of Pierre rallies to support Katie. I, I'm a nonpartisan in that way, but I, I was there to support her. And I have to say, it was 
fascinating. Uh, the passion in the room, the amount of people in the room. Uh, it, the, the, I went to one rally in Vancouver, then one rally a little east of Vancouver in Langley. Uh, the Vancouver rally was a little more diverse than I had originally expected it to be. Uh, there was a, a different crowd there. Um, but the passion, what's the, it, yeah. what's the male female breakdown, would you say? Um, pretty even. I didn't, I didn't think it was completely male dominated. I, I think mm. it was a good mix. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, you know, for a lot of these political rallies, they are, they tend to skew male. Uh, mm. But I, I thought it was a decent mix. And, you know, people are angry and, and the passion that they have, the hope that they're putting in Pierre Polyev. I mean, you can judge that whether it's right or wrong, but it's it's there, it's tangible. And I was in a crowd in Vancouver, so I was being let out the back to kind of get out of the, the crowd there. And this woman stops me and she like grabs my arm and she goes, are you working for the for for Mr. Polyev? And I go, oh, no, no, not me. I'm, I'm just with these folks. I'm just whatever, like they're, they're working for Pierre. And uh, she goes, well, you know, bless you and, and bless bless everyone working for for Pierre. And I, I was, you know, I, I don't say that disparagingly. I, I, I was quite astonished at the mood and, and the the hopes that people are pinning on him. And it was almost Trudeau-esque, but in a different way. Because I remember in 2015, it was the same idea of renewal and, you know, all our hopes are pinned on this one guy and he's going to fix everything. And you are seeing that in the peer rallies. Fun fact, though, the biggest pop in both of those events was the defund the CBC mantra. Pierre says that, and that got the biggest pop in both Vancouver and in Langley, which really surprised me because, you know, he's, he's sloganeering freedom and anti-Trudeau stuff, but it was the defund the CBC that I still find extremely fascinating that that resonates with this crowd of people. It's just low-hanging fruit. You know? Why though? <laughs> well, just, There's a lot of communities in Canada that wouldn't get that wouldn't have any media or journalists. Well, and Mo, like I was just CBC. we on the. I mean, this was a while ago, but on the you know the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, I just sat and and we like I, I'm not trying to. I don't prefer this phrase, but I'm not trying to virtue signal here. I mean, it's just a fact that we do have the recommendations printed off in our studio and I just I'm not gonna say I read them every single day but I want to be familiar with them and I wanted to familiarize myself with them and in particular I mean there's a lot of calls for what they want government to do and, and what the commission recommended but <clears throat> but like for the average ordinary Canadian there are things not that you can do but that we should like the things the calls to action that as Canadians we should be familiar with them and yeah. one of them is to adequately and more robustly fund the CBC and so that these mm -hmm. communities can be served, so that these important stories can be told. And one of the things that I would really like to see presented by a journalist or by someone uh, is to challenge these politicians to their face and point out that, that you know, arguing to defund the CBC is in direct defiance to the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation mm -hmm. Commission. And I haven't seen anybody answer for that. And I think it's a question that begs to be asked. I, I I feel like we're this. Does nobody remember 2015? Like, does nobody remember this? And that's all I'm seeing. And I'm listening to Mo talk and all I see, all I'm thinking about, yeah, this is 2015. You know, yeah. this is the US 2015. And, you know, just like um, people pin their hopes on Obama, that he was going to fix things, right? They got frustrated. Next thing you know, Trump. It's the same thing, like you were talking about Trudeau, right? Trudeau 
a lot of a lot of people pin their hopes on Trudeau and he's he hasn't delivered to a lot of those people and that that creates anger too the the performative nature of this liberal government creates an anger yeah. When they don't deliver. Erica, is and, there when you talk about what 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 the prime minister of this government has not delivered on, is there like one thing where you go, that's an example right there? Is there one thing that's kind of the uh, you're talking to an Alberta talk host? Of course, I got to uh-huh. say, well, what's what's the burr under your saddle, Erica? What's but like what's what's the well, one where you go? That's what he didn't deliver on. One. <laughs> well, I mean, is there, is, mean, there a, is there a prominent one? Uh Okay, I could start anything. Basically, basically, he uses communities of color and marginalized communities to build his brand and then does nothing for them. Boom. That's it. Yeah. I mean, but there's so many issues like environment is another. I, 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 mean, you I literally was going to say climate. You and, literally and then have... I'm like, no, that's low hanging fruit. <laughs> you know? It is. But I, I mean, I'm not I'm not a you know, you know, climate I, activist yeah. by any means, but it Me is low hanging fruit in the sense that you have this guy virtue signaling over how we need to save the climate. And then you literally have a cabinet minister saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but you know, uh, to, to, to fight climate change, we need to profit off climate change first. And then we use that money to fight climate change. And it's just like, just pick a side, like either say that, no, we, we need to provide, you know, cheap fuel for working class people or don't, or like, and I, I, I think that in BC, we're slightly different where most, or all three major parties are in favor of the carbon tax. But I actually think that there is somewhat of a progressive argument against the carbon tax, uh, particularly when we talk about places like Metro Vancouver, because you push people out to the suburbs, they still work in the city, and sometimes transit is just not adequate to meet the needs of families, to getting your kids around or kids to school or to their activities, to getting to work and back. And we've downloaded these costs onto people. And there you go. You have politicians that like virtue signal on carbon tax, like, oh, we're fixing, we're fixing climate change. And it's like, well, emissions are still going up. And like, we haven't done anything to, to either solve the, the price of gas or to, or to solve, you know, climate emissions, which is a serious problem. And so they want to kind of have their cake and eat it too on so many different issues. I think racial equity is another big issue. And, and you're right. It's, it's, it's felt like pandering especially from the prime minister himself yes. where he you know he speaks in this breathless tone and yeah. this is his super serious voice and it's yeah. like just talk to me like a human being man i and told like- you about I, I told you about upper lower canada see i told yeah. you that's how they are uh, Luke is watching us uh, right now live on YouTube, and he points out as well, electoral reform was a huge promise yes, made by the yes, Prime Minister. Yay, yes, uh, yes. Um, I, I will say that's that's been one of my favorite flip-flops uh, of any politician because <laughs> this was, and again, like you, Mo, I'm paraphrasing for sure, but it was pretty incredible. The Prime Minister, essentially what happens in 2015 leading up to the election, he promises electoral reform, and then the Liberals win, and then he says, well, clearly... Uh, electoral reform is not a priority anymore because Canadians got the government they want. And so yes! we're not going to bring them sitting there going, hang on yeah. a second. Hey, wait a second. I don't know about that. But that was another promise. I know that, that a lot of people wanted to see well, delivery on that they didn't. Well, let's, and, and let's yeah, talk next. about, uh, I, I was going to say housing as well. Like again, mm-hmm. particularly to BC for many years, it's like we, we want investment in public housing uh, where teachers, firefighters, policemen, whoever, like people who work, can live in the cities that they that they work in and 
you know, we, we have so little contribution from the federal government, even when it comes to things like money laundering or changing the rules of speculation. It's like they like to talk about it. And have they actually done anything on, on this file for, I mean, speaking from British Columbia, have they done anything for BC? I would argue no. And it is just frustrating. And that's why I think you have a lot of people like perhaps most senior who are looking to other parties for some sense of accountability or someone that will at least deliver on these grandiose promises and not just shake your hand, take a photo with you and, and assume that you're on board with them. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And I love that you talked about that, that grandiosity and the idea that, yes, you can have big dreams, but give us a plan, man. Yeah. Like, like, show us that you can actually deliver. And I think, Mo, what else you brought up that was really good was the accountability piece. We're seeing a government that gets away with a lot. And it, if it were for COVID, the liberals would be on track for a scandal every summer. Yeah. Did uh... So, no, so I think that all kind of, it works together and then you have this environment of affordability. I cannot, I cannot state how important this is in terms of how it is an, a political cauldron right now. Mm. And you have this, this affordability issue in the background and just, just on people's minds. And a government that doesn't listen to you, that tells you that COVID is over, that tells you that they're going to claw back CERB, that they got you to apply, they hounded you to apply for CERB, okay? And now they're like, by the way, we're gonna claw it back now. Like there is a loss of trust there, I think. I think there's just this erosion of trust in our institutions and in our political infrastructure. Another point about um, climate, they want, uh, they want to tax us when it comes to the carbon, fine. But they do not, put money back into building the infrastructure so that we yeah. can switch, yeah. right? When it comes to that part, they want to claim small government. Yeah. So if they can't, like, like Mo said, they can't have their cake and eat it too. To be clear, did you two know each other before this morning? No, oh, we're just like Twitter we, buddies. We, we, we're Twitter we, buddies. Twitter buddies. <laughs> because yeah. I feel it, there's the vibe uh, that the two of you have known each other for 20 years, and um, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm courting you both right now. I I feel like this is a baked in semi regular panel. What do you figure, the two of you? I love it. We've got a voice in I Ottawa. We've got a voice in Vancouver. We'll get you here on a semi regular basis, and we'll solve all of Canada's problems. What do you think? I love this. We will make all the grandiose promises. We will work with people to make this happen. (laughs) Exactly. Good stuff. We're kind of like the broadcasting or podcasting equivalent of the official opposition. It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy for us to solve all the problems. You know Uh, know who we are? We're the anti at issue panel. Ooh. Do we want to brand ourselves that way? Erica, you'll never wind up on that issue if you start branding yourself. I'm not going to wind up on that issue now. With, <laughs> with, with the way I tweet at Andrew Coyne, are you kidding? Okay. <laughs> They're never going to put me on that issue. <laughs> I, I like calling us the unofficial opposition. I think that's a good brand. Okay, I well, like this it. is this is yeah, what... the unofficial opposition. I it's like it. It's the unofficial opposition roundtable. 
Uh, we didn't. Uh, what, what the formula was: talk to Erica Ifill, fit in some advertising reads, and then talk to Mo Amir. Instead, this has this has turned into and, and and unfolded into one of the most wonderful, spontaneous conversations we've had on the show. Uh, the two of you, fast friends, obviously. I know that the audience is going to dig this big time when this podcast drops in just a few minutes. Um, I'm already looking forward to the next time we connect. Make sure you subscribe to the Bad and Bitchy podcast. That's what Erica Ifill co-host and of course you can uh, uh, read her work as well she does an amazing job follow her on Twitter and you'll you'll be able to track it all down at Wicked Chick and of course Mo Amir host of This Is Van Collar uh, getting set Mo you're getting set for season two right coming up on, on Check TV in the fall yeah we're just wrapping up season one season two on Check if you're in BC it's going to be Thursday nights at nine o'clock so we're going to be right after uh, Linda Steele and Jody Vance's new show nice. titled Steele and Vance and uh, yeah there are podcast versions of my show as well Usually we, we do the TV stuff and then we record some overtime uh, to have this kind of feel where it's a little more spontaneous and free flow and not bottled into TV segments. So, yeah. Okay. So uh, check people, out This Is Van Color as well. Okay. That's the name of the podcast too. People just search This yeah. Is Van Color. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, this has been so much fun. Thank you to the two of you it for doing been. this and, and thanks for sticking around. Thank you so much. Yeah, we appreciate it. That's Erica. I feel that's Mo Amir. How much fun was that? You mean the internet going out? It was horrible. Yeah, the internet wasn't going any out. fun at all, right? <laughs> the internet going out wasn't great. It's the worst thing a technical producer can go through. That is, is losing the internet. But I wish that people could see. You know what I should do next time is I should just start doing like the behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, we could do like Instagram live cam or something for people to see you cool as a cucumber, just navigating the technical challenges. Yeah, I just punched two holes in the wall and filled my <laughs> coffee and reset the router and yeah. started my formal lawsuit against TELUS. No, I'm just kidding. I shouldn't have said that. But you know what it was? I mean, this big was, company. This for us was a... Uh, we enjoy them most of the time. We don't have to kiss their ass now. <laughs> well, no, the internet they, they screwed is, us over. It's for, very good most yeah, of the did. time. Yeah, they did. We, we, you know, but, uh, but, in all, but, but in all honesty, uh, this was... For a second, you realize, like, so our so our signal just drops, which isn't great when you're doing a live streaming show. People on the podcast will mm -hmm. not have noticed any interruption. As a matter of fact, thanks to the magic of editing, this spontaneous chat is the first that they will be hearing of it. They were not aware of any interruption. They're not going to hear this. But at the same <laughs> But at the same time, you're like, like for people over the weekend, over the past few days, all these businesses, I, I referenced farmers markets yesterday, but all of these entrepreneurs, small businesses, big businesses for that matter, mm -hmm. when tech goes down, you are handcuffed. You are, you're helpless. And we knew it was the internet today because like the TV goes off. Everything went down. The Everything goes shut down. down. Yeah. Our Mixler audio goes off. Our YouTube goes off. Our OBS, it's everything at once. And it really, you're just like, it's like there's that the master switch just, yeah. just powered down. I'm telling you, who has the real power is these internet companies. They're the ones who really, yeah. Well, and, and, and interesting conversations happening in Ottawa right now is because uh, it takes something like this. I'm not talking about our outage today, but this sustained outage over the past number of days. It was for, really scary. For millions of people to wake up and say, wow, like not only what is happening here, but what could happen. Do you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. So now the wife is like, can you just keep a thousand dollars cash on hand? <laughs> I'm like, I think we need more than that. Like, what if it's down a week? What if it's down? a like? Yeah, but carrying a bunch of cash, having a bunch of cash with you is like having a bunch of booze or weed with you at the same time. <laughs> if you have well, a ton of it, whole, you're going to smoke and drink it all. You know, you got to just get it in little chunks, just little chunks. Some of us are, are responsible. We don't go around, you know, 
cannot relate. Throwing one dollar bills at everyone like you. No. <laughs> Speaking of weed, <laughs> have you checked out the new Dairy Queen Summer Blizzard menu? Oh, God. I was just looking for that open window. And I don't think our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park will mind. As a matter of fact, if you're out walking the dog, you got the sunglasses on, the sun's hitting your face. Why not visit your local Dairy Queen? Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. There is no summer treat quite like the Dairy Queen Blizzard. Now, up for debate, of course, the greatest Blizzard flavor of all time. There's all the classics. I mean, you can't go wrong with Oreo. You're not going to go wrong with Score. But their summer selections are here for a limited time. Why not treat yourself, treat the kids today to a Dairy Queen Blizzard in Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park. You let them know that Real Talk sent you. And for those of you that love getting outside and enjoying the backyard, but maybe don't enjoy the like laying the sod yourself, building the deck yourself, constructing the retaining wall yourself, plumbing in the outdoor kitchen yourself, may we recommend a call to Eden Landscaping. Visit them online today. You can check out their services, their portfolio, some of the projects they've worked on at landscapeedmonton.ca. Bringing outdoor spaces to life, whether it's ultra-modern, natural beauty, stunning stonework that you're looking for, irrigation, lighting, water features, they do it all, and they've been earning the return business and referrals of their clients for more than two decades. Eden Landscaping is at landscapeedmonton.ca. Brandy on the chat says her TELUS went down at the exact same time. Is that right? For about five minutes. Yeah, read on the chat there. So. Oh, come on. What is TELUS <laughs> trying to keep up with? Rogers has been getting all the buzz, and TELUS is going to knock out its customers' supports today just to make know. sure that people are talking about them, too. Well, Rogers says it was like it was an update to one of the core pieces of their like internet infrastructure that caused all this right what do you but think the true sure, story right? is what's the true like story? really did you really just update a router in a room and I, the, i'm picturing like the, the homer entire... simpson type employee <laughs> like homer homer at the nuclear power plant there's some guy some homer simpson type guy at rogers hq that like Pushed the wrong button or plugged the wrong thing into the wrong thing. It's me. It's me, the guy who's like, you know, I'll, I'll update that thing next week for <laughs> Ryan. I don't want to do it right now. It's going to take yeah, The a boys while. are going to be there watching the NHL draft. I got to give myself to the. I don't know what accent that was. <laughs> I don't know either. We'll call it Eastern Canadian. Uh, why am I going there? Every Tuesday. We celebrate innovation. We celebrate people that are making an impact in their community. We, we celebrate groups uh, that are really re achieving remarkable things. We call it the Leading Edge, and it's presented by our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy. On the Leading Edge today, did you hear about PP Palooza? This is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> the Leading Edge is always supporting these initiatives that are helping people, oftentimes with challenges that might be flying under the general public's radar. And this is a perfect example. This was organized by Leading Edge and Yo Mama Maternity. Uh, the purpose, laugh until you pee. <laughs> Raising awareness for pelvic floor health and therapy. You know, sometimes people get embarrassed talking about things like incontinence or constipation or the changes of your pelvic floor muscles, maybe after you've welcomed a new baby to the world, right? The Terra Center is a local nonprofit organization providing support and services to teen parents in the community. The Leading Edge specialized pelvic therapist gave an informative session at part of this 
comedy-driven event on the benefits of treatment options that are widely unknown to the general public. Leading Edge also has a new pelvic health space that opened in their St. Albert, Alberta location with the latest technology helping diagnose and treat pelvic distinctions. PP Palooza doing an amazing job, not just raising supplies and support for the Terra Center, but also awareness on a very important subject impacting many, many people across the country. That's why PP Palooza is on the lead. It's just so fun to say, and it's also on the leading edge. Leading Edge Physiotherapy presenting the Leading Edge every week here on Real Talk. Life shouldn't hurt. Coming up on Wednesday's Real Talk, we have an opportunity to go to New York City. We're going to talk to a psychologist that's been doing a lot of research into the mass shooters in the United States. What do we know about who these people are? What drives them to that point of mass violence? And what can we as a society do about it? Dr. Fabiana Franco will be our guest live from New York City. Plus, we're going to talk to the traveler, the world traveler that captured that remarkable ice avalanche video. Harry Shimon will join us live from Kyrgyzstan. That's coming up on Wednesday. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook Shivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 